Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. Everything is awesome. Everything is the second part. Cool when you're living your dream. Cool when you're living your dream. I need to learn that freaking song. I'm waking up. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Just a quick note is <coughs> when I was with Focus, I said freaking all the time. Did you? All the time. Yeah, I really did. Why is that? Were you like the edgy missionary? Mm. Like, oh, dude. I, I want to be discipled by Rob because did you hear what he said the other day? Yeah, he said freaking. We were talking about the Bible and he used the word freaking. <laughs> no, but it definitely did catch on to where like people when they were around me, if I would say something that they just thought was like off the cuff or something like that, they'd be like, "Are you freaking kidding me?" Right oh now. really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That is something you say. Mm-hmm. Are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. Look, my mom, she would not be happy. <laughs> hey, have you ever noticed that? You do that, like, if there's a person that has a certain way of talking or, like, a phrase like that, that the people around them, or, or maybe just you or a certain group, like, you start using that phrase. Oh, absolutely. For sure. mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Father O'Malley, my spiritual director, the blessed memory. Did you guys know him? I met him, met him a couple of times, yeah. He talked to me about this when he went to Puerto Rico. The way he would speak Spanish, he would just, because it wasn't his first language, Whatever group of people he was around, he would speak Spanish the exact same way they did. Oh, really? So, like, if they had a certain accent or if they used words a certain way, he would just mimic it uh, in whatever. And and it made him start thinking about how he does that a little bit, you know, with whatever gesture or mannerism of a group of people. The most it ever happened to me was when I was in California fighting forest fires because we were around these guys all the time. And they had a very different way. I mean, they didn't have southern accents or, you know, kind of hillbilly way of talking, but... These are all California guys? No, very northern California. Like, 40, our barracks was 45 minutes south of Oregon, so it was not close to... I mean, Sacramento was the closest city, but that was, like, 200 miles away. Um, and it was inland five hours, so we drove to the coast once. It took us five hours to get there. Um, so it was really out in the country. Doris, California was the uh, largest or the the closest town, and it was like probably a thousand people at that. It was tiny, um, and then our bar- our barracks was just this little fire base or whatever fire station. Um, but those dudes, like the way that they talk, I still have certain things that I say that mm-hmm. that's from there. Um, <laughs> but the funniest, oh my gosh, we were uh, we were doing a controlled burn. They call it prescribed fire. There's a, some spray hair distinction between those two that make one legit and one not legit. But we're doing a prescribed fire in a wilderness area. That it had never it hadn't been done since the Native Americans did it as a way to like cycle their crops. Because they would grow stuff in the wilderness yeah, yeah, yeah. winter <coughs> Cool. So this was like this landmark thing that my boss was so excited <clears throat> to do because he was really into fire use, using fire to like keep yeah. ecosystems healthy. Um so we were. It was called the Mountain uh, Marble Mountain Wilderness. Beautiful area, California. 
named for this gorge uh, that looks like marble. Like this whole huge valley that has a water, like these mountain lakes up super high. One of them is called Sky High. One of them is called Little Sky High, I think. And they one flows into the other in the waterfall, and then the other one flows down into this valley. And it's just a rim of marble mountains. It's like incredibly breathtaking. So we hiked up to the highest point of the rim, which is all shale rock and really hard to climb up. And you can get to this point where you're just, you know, like when everything in your midsection kind of sucks up, like because you're looking down at this immense drop. But it's all, it also makes you feel, it makes you feel tiny, but also like so important that you're the one thing in this whole place that can appreciate the beauty, you know, of all of these huge mammoth parts of creation, only this tiny little ant is able to like let the beauty in. Yeah. You know, um, kind of like, I think it was Einstein that said, like in the human being, the atom knows itself. Like that, we're made of atoms, but you can actually know what an atom is. Um, so it's like one of those existential moments, you know. And we were uh, we ran down the shell rock because it's kind of like running down snow. Have you ever done that? Like oh yeah. Like, it, it's just this this rock that's really hard to climb up, but going down, just like every time you push in, it basically like just softens your like running on marshmallows or yeah. something, even though it's rocks. <clears throat> and so we're just like hauling down this stuff. And uh, my buddy Eric, who like had a master's from the University of Montana, he was one of the bosses, was like, we're running. He's like, did you guys feel this a feeling of euphoria when you were up there? <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, yeah. <clears throat> and then <laughs> this other dude who not, did not have a master's degree was like, what is... What does euphoria mean? <laughs> and the way he described it while we're running, I can stop laughing. He just goes, it's like the best effing feeling you've ever effing felt. <laughs> he did not say effing. But, <laughs> like, this is the perfect, like, nexus of education, erudition, like, beauty, and just the raw culture of the place <laughs> that you would define euphoria that way yeah yeah um and in such a situation like, gosh man where else on earth was euphoria ever described like that <laughs> oh yes why is there something rather than nothing it sounds like a pretty sweet view of the place though it's incredible it was it was crazy dude the, the stuff that we got to see, because honestly, dude, part of part of the cool thing about fighting fires is that you were going into places where nobody else was allowed to be, so you were right. always the only people there. That is really cool. Um, oh man, yeah. So you'd be in the, you'd have basically the wilderness to yourself. When I was in uh, when I was in Assisi, Italy, outside of Saint Clair's Basilica, there, there's this incredible view of. The valley, it's so like mm-hmm. the town of the CC that's down in the valley, and then like kind of these rolling Italian mountains. So we watched the sunset there um, two or three times that I've been there, and it is—it's almost overwhelmingly beautiful because you go in all these beautiful churches, which are awesome, and like show what man can do to glorify God with our hands. But then it's just like, okay, that's way cooler. Like mm-hmm. that sunset is ridiculous, right? And if it's properly ordered, you know, like, just to realize 
that, um, you know, God, like you said, like we can contemplate the sunset. And like mm-hmm. God gave us to that, that as a gift. Oh, it's, it's very, very overwhelming in that sense. But that's a specific, like, memory from, from my mind mm-hmm. of that sense that how small we are, but then since we can contemplate that beauty, mm-hmm. you know, how real we can be mm-hmm. and how good life can be. It's awesome. Relax. I do think it's like when we talk about creation, obviously creation is good, inherently good. We talked about that tonight. How God, how cool it is that God uses our natural appetites and even our harmful, you know, sometimes not healthy desires mm-hmm. to um, work His will with us as instruments. And, um, well, I think it's important for us, especially when we talk about it in the context of the church and the context of liturgy, to not, and not saying that you were doing this, but to not put creation and what a church should look like, like the creation of, of man's hands, mm-hmm. in contradiction. So right. it's not like, oh, because you're in a church, um, like creation outside is bad, and so we have mm-hmm. to keep it bad out. It's like, no, within the context of the mass, mm-hmm. then we're not supposed to be celebrating fallen nature. We're supposed to be making the heavenly banquet present to us down here on earth. This is what Father Barron talks about all the time. Um, is That's heaven reaching earth. That's like the meeting point of the two. And that's what we're supposed to be depicting. It's, of course, always going to be fallen. It's going to be a fallen version of what it really is. But um, that's what we're showing. We're not saying that creation is bad, therefore we need to block it out. Like, oh, I don't want to see it now. No, it's, we're bringing ourselves up to that heavenly reality of what's actually going on. Um, but yeah, I just love that how the two are not in opposition of, of each other. It's just there's a time and a place for this, mm-hmm. the liturgy of the Eucharist, and then creation. Creation is beautiful. Creation is good. We had that awesome encounter tonight for Christian because of his love for soup. <laughs> and now we got that check. Now we got that check figured out. Yeah. yeah. And our love for Italian food. I thought about before just this, talking about this type of stuff spurs it on, certainly. But what an action, what a true Catholic worldview would look like. Mm-hmm. Because I find myself constantly just realizing that, you know, I don't have a completely Catholic worldview all the time. You know, just from we grew up in, you know, the U.S., which is heavily, like, has a heavily Protestant influence. Mm-hmm. And certainly, I think a lot of times growing up <clears throat> in the States, you hear, Almost like this, you know, it's got elements of truth to it, but we hear so much that, like, the church is about what you can't do. Mm-hmm. But if you had that true Catholic worldview where, like, at a much deeper level, the church is a yes to, and, like, creation and um, human beings at their deepest level are good because they're created by God and human beings in the form and likeness of, of God. So... I don't know. I mean, I just don't, I've thought about that before. Like, what, what would an actual, thorough, true Catholic worldview look like? Mm-hmm. I think, well, I mean, we gotta look at the saints. Yeah, that's true. And the saint that's coming to mind, not official yet, but. Is it, I think I might know who you're gonna say. And if it's Chesterton, then you were right. Because Chesterton. Yeah, I was gonna say Mahatma Gandhi. 
You were going to say Mahatma Gandhi? He was I number did, two. I thought you were going Little Flower. I thought you were going Therese. Oh, we could go Therese as well. See, that's the thing. You could look at any saint, and they live it in a number of different ways. That's but true. it is the Catholic worldview. My number three was going to be the Dalai Lama. But I was like... <laughs> He's not dead yet. <laughs> Dude, Christian shoes. My number four was going to be Dennis Rodman for his, his uh, diplomacy work in North Korea. Yes. Dude. <laughs> yes. Ugh, a true politician. Uh, I heard he also just entered rehab as well. So he's been on Rummer. crazy drugs while he's been yeah. our North Korean delegate. That's awesome, dude. That poor guy. It's not it's awesome. Such a it's not, bummer. It's not awesome. No, I'm being sarcastic. That's okay. awful. <laughs> yeah. That guy was representing the United States in North Korea. Not officially. No, not officially, yeah. but no, not even nearly near officially, but still, it's just like oh. it's more official than a '90s Bulls basketball player. Well, it's nobody. That I guy mean, is America. Nobody has had. I mean, we don't have real contact, any real communication with North Korea until Dennis Rodman <laughs> comes over there. And you know why? Gosh. Because that dude, whatever, Kim Jong's son. Kim Jong-un? That's what I said. Yeah. He was a huge fan of Jordan. Oh, was he? Yeah. And Rodman that. is like the closest thing he could get to Michael Jordan because he played with him. Dude, oh all I know is I just read every once in a while, it's like, Kim Jong-un killed his... Uncle with, yeah, like, a sword or something. Like, Gosh, that's so bad. But Christian Shu talking about the Dalai Lama, he started, he did a little presentation the other day. And I, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever seen Caddyshack. Mm-hmm. But he started the class. Oh, Bill Murray scene? With, with Bill Murray scene talking about the Dalai Lama. <laughs> He's like, so I'm like, hey, uh, hey, Lama, what are you going to give me a little tip for my efforts over here? Oh, come on, dude. you got to do the scene better than I don't, like, I don't know it very well. He's like, he's got the pitchfork to the kid's neck. Yeah. <laughs> this, this scene doesn't make any sense. Okay, thank like, you. Like, he's just, it's just out of nowhere. He's got a pitchfork, like, he's the groundsman or whatever. And he's just talking to this teenager. Like, uh, I guess that scene, have you guys ever seen, like, the commented version of that movie? No. He, well, first of all, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray hated each other. Really? I didn't yeah, know Yeah, they have one scene together. And that's when Chevy Chase is playing that, like, midnight round. And he ends up hitting the ball into his, like, Hobble that he lives in, the groundskeeper. Yeah, he plays it off his Kentucky. It's a it's a cross between Kentucky bluegrass and some <laughs> other grass. <laughs> right. Yep. But that whole scene where like, you know, Chevy Chase is being kind of a jerk to him. I guess that was like really their relationship that he just had no time for. Really. But a mm-hmm. lot of that movie was made up on the spot, which I'm sure that scene was. Yeah. Completely oh unreal. yeah. I've heard that. I've heard before that Bill Murray's entire role in Caddyshack was unscripted. Mm-hmm. So every scene he did, they just let him go, and he, which is unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, like the go- like when the <laughs> Scottish guys like, I want you to kill all the golfers. I want every golfer on the course dead. He's like, yeah. What? Well, I hear what you're saying, boss, but I think uh, I think if I kill all the golfers, they'd lock me up and throw away the key. <laughs> the golfers, you idiot! <laughs> he did. So he's a huge Illini fan. And, oh, he's from Chicago, I think. Yeah, right? so he's yeah. a big Cubs fan and a big Illini fan. And when we made the Final Four, which you were probably at U of I when we made I the was. Final Four. And I, I remember they showed him that Elite Eight game that was so crazy when we beat Arizona, when we came back and beat Arizona. They uh, they kept showing Bill Murray on the TV because he was like front row at the oh, game. Yeah. Well, anyway, he goes to the Final Four. He's like in St. Louis for the whole thing. And the night before, or maybe a couple of nights before or something, the national championship game, you know, we got beat by North Carolina. He took, oh, that game. 
I don't know if he took the team out to dinner or like went to dinner with the team and he had it set up. They get back to the hotel and he had a whole room ready and they said he just got on the stage and just took requests and did like a straight hour worth of stand-up comedy. No way. So like they would just scream out like, Caddyshack, and he would just go into character and yeah. just start being Carl. Oh, uh, man. Caddyshack. And another thing. That is awesome. I love it when they have uh, the cool sports stories where the different athletes will interact yeah. with the teams. And, or uh, one that I loved was uh, the Oklahoma State. Hold on. Can we finish our thought from what you were talking about? The Catholic worldview? Yeah. You were talking about we the really Saints. really got off track there. Well, you're saying Chesterton. <laughs> oh, yeah, Chesterton. The Dalai Lama. Yeah. Oh, that's, that it. Yeah. that's it. That's it. Um, oh, so Chesterton's big thing was joy, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a lot that he talked about. But um, seeing creation for what it actually is, is, and also seeing ourselves for what we are, which is us being creatures living under the will of God and not sort of creating our own thing or trying to control creation or trying to control the world with knowledge, but having knowledge so that we can live as creatures as God intended us to. Mm. So like this this Catholic worldview, it, it like has to seep into your bones so that literally yeah. everything that you see is sort of ordered towards that, that worldview of understanding this is creation and I'm a creature. Yeah, but you know, you have to look at scripture. We're meant to be lords or stewards over creation. Uh, so it's kind of at our disposal at that. But all of creation is good. Mm-hmm. And all of creation, so seeing something and seeing the telos that it's created with. Yeah. Like, this table was created. These things, these chairs, us as persons, are created for the greater glory of God. And, like, to be able to see that in everything that you see is so, that would be so wild. Mm-hmm. Like, so they, there's tons of stories of Chesterton could see Anything, any event, any minor thing, any inanimate object, and he would automatically trigger some tangent in his head. Oh, totally. About how this served some purpose in God's creation. Yeah. Or, you know, what, how this is ordering towards God. Awesome. How crazy is that? Think about the perpetual joy and happiness that you, you could live with that if you saw God's creation and God's goodness in every single thing that you saw. They... George Weigel, I was actually just reading this chapter the other day in Letters to a Young Catholic. He talks about... I read that. He has a, he has a chapter on, and he mainly talks about Chesterton, <clears throat> and he calls it the sacramental worldview. Okay. Which actually fits mm-hmm. perfectly with what you were okay. saying. But he has this awesome paragraph. I wish I had it memorized, honestly, because he's talking about how, for a guy like Chesterton, you could experience God like in a church. He didn't take anything away from that. But he he would also experience God in a very real way, like at the pub you yeah. always go to, yeah. and like all these other experiences of life. And he has this great line. It's like for for Chesterton, Catholicism was about like thick steaks, big cigars, <laughs> and like a couple other things. And then yeah. he says he's like it's obviously more than just that, but so much of the world today tells us that that can't be yeah. included. Yeah, and that was just he was like the opposite. Yeah. Of that. Yeah. But I think you're right. Like, saints are those who can see the world yeah. in reality. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's more reality than, totally. than we see, than we see it totally. oftentimes. Like, you, you meet a guy like Monsignor Esso. Yeah. It's like, think about his worldview. Mm-hmm. Like, someone who is so in tune with the supernatural and the spiritual aspect of 
everyday life, which is more real than even these things here. Not that these things are, are not real, but the spiritual realities that we live in, he's so present to that. Mm-hmm. It's almost to the point of, like, that's, that would be scary. Yeah. Like, it, I'm at, obviously not at a point yeah. that I could handle it. Henceforth, God has not, you know, given us these gifts. Yeah. But to be a person that could handle that world, you're like Padre Pio or, you know, Curie of ours. Like, yeah. think about how he saw the world. Dogs go to heaven, goats go to hell. But I was thinking about this when I saw the Lego movie tonight, which you need to see, by the way. Okay. Can I spoil it? Ugh. <sighs> I mean, I already know the end. You already know the end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Robert. So we have to put. I did tell you yeah, the end. Yeah, yeah. So the end. I mean, it's it's all just kind of fun and games, but it got me thinking. Basically, like this whole adventure of the Lego Men turns out to be a kid's imagination, right? Um, and his dad is this neurotic, like the the equivalent of the guy who has you know all the toy trains set up in a town. He's done this with Legos, just built in like an entire city with all these lands and things, that skyscrapers, and it's beautiful, but it's a kid's toy that he's made into his adult purposes, right. which he wants to glue in place so the kids can't move it, so everything's perfect, you know? And the kid is just like tearing the tops off of buildings and has this whole adventure story with like this little construction man, uh, which is just one of the, one of just these, like, cookie cutter looks like every other piece in the set but he picks him out to be the hero yeah and um all this stuff that happens ends up being just some dream in a kid's mind right right but you're wrapped into the story you're wrapped into that little guy uh emmett is his name and his whole drama and even after you find out it's all just made up you still they like let you back into the world and the kid literally drops the character, the, the little guy, and he realizes that he's in the kid's dream too, because yeah. all of a sudden the, the veil is pulled back. Right. He goes out of Plato's cave and he's just in the basement of this house of the dad and the kid. And it's funny, like he, the kid steals him back and drops him through this like cardboard tube that's decorated with this like magical portal or something. <laughs> and he's back into the Lego zone. Yeah. And then the adventure finishes. <laughs> okay. Right? Um, and it's really cool the way they do it, but that lifting of the veil back, that it was all in a kid's imagination, in, in a way, it got me thinking about, okay, what, if, what are our lives? You know, we, what if the veil was drawn back for a second? If you were Monsignor SF and you really saw what was going on yeah. behind everything that we kind of take for granted as the complete picture, you know, I get up in the morning. I got to say the breviary because I promised as a deacon to do this. Well, you did. I got. <laughs> I got to get to mass. <laughs> I got to get to mass. Then I got class. I'm gonna eat lunch because my body needs nourishment. Right. And I need to go back to class. I need to get my homework done. I need to whatever. All these things that we kind of just, you know, we're doing spiritual things, but mainly we're taking care of day to day tasks. Right. Um, and I just thought about this praying last night in the chapel. Um, like, what's, what do I really believe is happening here? God has drawn me here through, you know, my own freedom, my own volition, but inspired me with his spirit and love. It, it didn't come from me. I didn't just choose to come sit here for an hour in front of the tabernacle, in front of the Eucharistic Jesus. Um, he drew me here with his alluring love. Yeah. Okay, and he's actually here. 
in the tabernacle. Jesus is present. You know, sacramental. Yeah. But, you know, more present in a way, I mean, if you could say that, of the omnipresent God, a more intense presence than elsewhere that you just find, like, in the work of it or whatever, even in this room while we talk. Right. I mean, God's present here. Right. In a way, he's guiding this whole thing. And this is part of his dream for creation. But there, you know, you're sitting, like, at the empty tomb. And Jesus is risen from the dead. Mary Magdalene. Like, what if you were there? Like, that's actually happening. And I'm a, I'm a creature being created even at this moment. It's hard to communicate what that really means. Like, it, it only dawns on you in spurts. Yeah. Um, but, like you say, it's, it, that's reality. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's the key. Is that when you realize, when you get to a point, and I don't, I don't know that I'm, you know, anyone can do it all the time in, in this life, but to kind of hold that, the realization in the front of your mind all the time. But when you can take that step, you know, of faith and really believe that that's the real world and this workaday world that we, we've grown up in is much less real than, than the Catholic world. I think that's huge. I think that changes, that changes everything as far mm-hmm. as, you know, a personal faith, a prayer life, um, I guess I don't know that it's the main, the absolute main thing, the key, but it's a huge step, I would say, to realize that. Here, to me, St. Francis is the saint of what we're talking about. Yeah. This earthy, heavenly, whatever. You're like, just everything's contained in this one poor little five-foot dude in Italy. Yeah. Was he five feet tall? He was supposedly really short. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. And he, uh, Chesterton's biography, which I saw you were reading. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've gotten to this part, but Mumford and Sons, you know the song The Cave? Oh, yeah. yeah. So if you've gotten to this part, yeah. yeah. basically The Cave is just a word-for-word verbatim quote yep. of this book. Literally, literally, you can take the song The Cave and put it to that paragraph in, yeah. in St. Francis of Assisi. And uh, what does he say? He's like, and it's kind of like Plato's Cave, right? He uses Plato's Cave as an... As an allegory for this allegory. Kind you know? of, yeah, kind of. Although St. Francis goes into the cave, how Chesterton, Chesterton tells it. I think Plato says we start in the cave. Yeah. But, so he goes into this cave, and he does, like, a complete 180. So he, he says he comes out of the cave walking on his hands, mm-hmm. and then when he sees the world hanging upside down, it's from, in a sense, it's he's looking at the same reality. Like, he's yeah. looking at the same world. He's looking at the town of Assisi. Right. But everything is just dangling by a thread. Right. So, like, everything that made it, like, safe, mm-hmm. in a sense, every all the weight and, like, the bricks and the mortar that made it a solid city mm-hmm. became, in St. Francis's worldview, was now its most dangerous attribute. Because since it's inverted... Mm-hmm. It's hanging, and that's actually what's pulling it down. So it's only that act of grace from God that's holding it up. Yeah. And that's how he saw the whole world, because he came out of the cave walking on his hands. Yeah. That's why, because he was just hanging on to the earth. Right. That, that, that's the thing. It's like, Francis is hanging on to the earth more than anybody. I doubt that dude ever showered. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He wasn't, like, 
cleanliness is next to godliness, this Protestant. And that's the thing, is the, the Catholic cultures, you know, France, Spain, these are the earthy cultures, man. <laughs> like England, oh, we're all prim and proper, Downton Abbey, Monster Truck style, you know. Just, <laughs> like, uh, everything's got to be clean and polished and yeah. everything. And, yeah. and here we've got Irishmen just like in a pub, just yeah. like beer steins <laughs> clashing and well, Germany. Go, go to uh, <laughs> The Simpsons, I think. Hit it on the, the Catholic head. heaven, yeah. The Catholic heaven versus the Protestant heaven. Have you seen this? No, 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 no. So literally, Homer becomes... I haven't seen the whole episode. I've just seen the clip. But Homer must become Catholic. Yeah, no, and I know this whole episode, dude. I've, I, I, I love The Simpsons. So yeah, yeah. he goes... Bart gets expelled from the public. I think Connor. Yeah. I think Connor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is my number one favorite episode. So Bart gets expelled from Have public school. Have you seen school. all of them? Probably not. Well, I think the recent seasons they got. The thing about The Simpsons is that they get new writers every few years. Oh, they have okay. certain writers that go like, I think Schwarzwelder or some German name. This guy is like the classic Simpsons writer. Wrote all the best episodes. Like he's been with Matt Groening since the beginning, but. Conan O'Brien used to write for him for some, oh, really? some years in the 90s. And, um, I love and they that have movie. so many characters in the show that it's really easy for somebody to come in and just take a character from the show and just write a, a new episode. Yeah, about yeah, it. yeah, and, yeah. You know, like, I'm going to write a Mr. Burns episode yeah. or a Pooh episode or something. Uh, actually, me and Damak talked about this for a while. Like, what if we wrote an episode of The Simpsons and sent it in? I mean, probably not. There's so many jokes loaded in every single Simpsons episode. Yeah. How could you... How could two guys write a whole episode? Mm-hmm. It has to be around a table of just people laughing their butts off at each other's jokes and then, like, calling it down to the best ones. Yeah. Because even the signs, like, if there's, like, a PTA meeting, you know that the sign outside the school is going to have some joke that's on the screen for literally, like, a second. That's true. Yeah. You know, and somebody had to write that joke. But anyways, this, this episode, Bart gets expelled for some prank. I forget what it was, but he was wrongly accused. And they can't get a school for him. They're trying to get him into all these schools. Only the Catholic school will take him. And uh, Classic. Which, I have something to say on that after. Sure. He's a, so obviously, he's going to have a Bart attitude. I do what I want. Like, slingshot, slingshot in the back pocket and everything. And The nun, it's like this totally anachronistic Catholic school where there's actually a nun in a habit who's, like, hitting people with yardsticks and yeah. stuff. And Classic. I think he, he even says... Uh, He's like, um, the nun is going to hit him with the yardstick for, like, sass back. And he's like, that's all right. I'm just going to move my, uh, I'm just going to move my desk 33 inches away. She's like, whoosh, it! a yard is 36, is 36 inches, something like that. Anyways, there's all these little jokes in there. And, um, Bart starts praying, like, with the sign of the cross before Grace at, at the meals. And, and obviously the Simpsons are Protestant, they go to, the Protestant church every week. And then Homer goes to tell the priest what's what, and they're having a pancake breakfast. And of course, Homer is this fat guy, and he loves food. So he gets lured in by the priest with this, this pancake breakfast, and he's asking all these questions. He goes to confession for like an hour. So then the family is starting to go Catholic, Homer and Bart. And my favorite scene is when the, the priest is up there in the catechism class where people are getting their first communion, and Homer's in the class with all the little kids. And uh, the priest is like, what is it What is it called when the bread and wine at Mass become the body and blood of Christ? 
and Homer has transubstantiation scrawled across his entire <laughs> left arm, and he raises his hand, says transubstantiation, and the kid next to him goes, hey, he cheated. And the Homer's like, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Then you see on the other arm, he's got God equals good, devil equals bad. <laughs> so, other arm. so Marge is all concerned because... Uh, like they're gonna end up. She in, wants to stay Protestant. She wants them to stay Protestant, mainly because uh, it turns out she wants to go to the same heaven as them. So she has this dream where she's up in heaven and she's in Protestant heaven with all the Englishmen, like playing croquet and wearing sweaters around their yeah. necks and stuff. And it's very ordered and just boring. <laughs> it's yeah. super boring. But like they have to be like very proper when they talk to each other. Yeah. And blah, blah, continue. And she's like, "Where's Jesus?" And one of the British guys is like, "Oh, I'm sorry, Marge." Appears he's gone native. And he's over in Catholic heaven, which is another cloud. <laughs> it's got like the Mexicans, the Irishmen are drinking and fighting, and like the, Mexicans the Italians. Are, like, dancing and yeah, just. <laughs> it's all the Catholic crazy. countries. And Jesus is on a sheet and they're like throwing him up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> but it's That's a classic. Yeah. I mean, one of the most penetrating episodes, I think, in terms of like religious. Yeah. It had to be written by someone that was seriously religious one way or the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. yeah. What were you going to say on it? That was... Oh, Catholic schools you were talking about. I mentioned how Catholic, Catholic, Catholic schools oh, the only yeah. one that take um, Well, my... When I was with Focus, my buddy Matt Simmons was this guy. He was a tattoo artist, and he's just got this hardcore life story before his conversion. And so he just had this radical... I mean, he was into a lot of stuff. Um, he said this radical conversion, and so he's married now, his wife is great, he decided, he had this very successful, um, tattoo shop, and Matt has covered, like, you know, he's got tattoos on his neck, like, he had big old, you know, the hoop earrings, or not the hoop earrings, the gauges, yeah, um, in his ears, and he just, like, when you first see him, you're like, who is this dude, you know, and, and then you talk to him, and he's just incredibly deep, like, kind, Catholic man. And uh, so I got to be pretty good friends with him. And he ended up, he, he worked for Focus two years at, at Lincoln. Um, and he talked about when he was, an in, something that impacted him um, was that, I don't know why he had to, he was in the school for sure, because he didn't have any kids, but somehow he had gone to, like, a public school and he said you could just see in people's faces, like secretary's faces, the red flags going up, like just by seeing him because hmm. of his appearance. You know, he's got tattoos everywhere. He's a huge guy. Yeah, and he's little things in his ears. I've met him. He, it's it's kind of <clears throat> jarring to see him. You're like, yeah. ooh. Um, I mean, he's that must be tough, man. You go, you walk into any room and yeah. your probably your IQ perceived IQ is like. 20 yeah. points lower than and, what's but, accurate. And, like, Matt is a super intelligent guy. I mean, he is a But you'd look at a guy like that and be like, oh, you must be, like, burnt out. Or, or yeah, or something yeah. like that. And, um, but has, like, a very successful business. And so he said in the public school, it was just red flag. You could just tell going off, like, crazy. And then at some point, he went into a Catholic school. And I guess the secretary was like, hey, what's up? Are you serious? Really? That's this awesome. Line. That is awesome. Chill, you know? And, uh, and then he eventually, his whole story is really, really cool. But he eventually, I don't, I don't know how he was on the trip, but I think he was Protestant before he was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Like, so he kind of, his whole story of conversion right. went that route. 
but he ended up in uh, in Calcutta, I think, and like worked with Mother Teresa's sisters. Ooh. And I don't think I don't think he ever met Mother Teresa. She might have been she might have died even before mm-hmm. you know he was over there. But just talked about like just their radicalness and like that was the gospel, you yeah. know. And he he knew yeah. at that point. And uh, so his story is incredible. Like just step by step, yeah. God calling him to the church and like full communion. Um, but really, that's really what's so cool, guy. man. And maybe that's the Catholic worldview is like uh, the human person is a uniqueness. Yeah, you know? there's no mold. Yeah, right. Of holiness. <clears throat> this goes back to our conversation last time. Like. There's no assembly line personality yeah. that where you get on the conveyor belt and you whatever you are, you come out looking like a Christian. Yeah. Christ just, he doesn't change your nature. He just like turns up the gain on the amplifier. Oh, yeah. So that... To the extra 11. Yeah. And he also burns away the crap, you know, the things that where you shy away from grace and things that make you more turn in on yourself and be yeah. less who you are. But... Um, obviously that guy can't change the fact that he's tattooed all over or right. that his ears are permanently formed in a certain way because of the decision he made about gauging his ears or whatever. But like, so those are kind of accidental, accidental features of his, uh, personality, but who he is in, in a certain sense are reflected in that, you know, mm-hmm. like he just lives intensely. And if you end up in Calcutta ever in your life, you're an intense person. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're born there. Right, but you can see that, like in our religion, their Mother Teresa and this guy, mm-hmm. there's not a huge void in between them. Right, right. They're brothers and sisters. Yeah, those two. Yeah, which is crazy when you think about that. Yeah, yeah. I I do think, like what you're talking about, the best analogy that I've heard for the understanding of grace intensifying human nature. So you have like the theological virtues, um, prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude, which sort of make us uh, yeah, our human virtues. Virtue, yeah, I'm right. sorry. The um, cardinal virtues that make us human. They mm-hmm. Those are our, our human virtues that, that we work on, obviously. And then the theological virtues are the ones that will intensify our nature. So the best analogy that I've heard is the, the burning bush mm-hmm. uh, with Moses. So you have like the bush itself with uh, its structure and its different limbs jutting out all over the place, would be the cardinal virtues. So that's what the bush is. That's the sort of the nature of it. And that grace is that fire that sort of intensifies it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't eat it away. It doesn't right, burn it, it away. It doesn't, yeah. And that's, I think, is, is a big lie that the world feeds us is if you turn yourself over to Christ, he's going to turn himself, he's going to take, take over. Mm-hmm. He's going to take away the good things that you have. Which is such a lie. No, he's mm-hmm. going to catch them on fire and intensify them. Right. Not to burn them away. He'll purge the bad things. Mm-hmm. There's probably some bird people in that bush. He probably purges it away. <laughs> we don't need that here. Yeah. But he yeah. intensifies it. He's going to catch you on fire without taking you over. Matter of mm-hmm. fact, he needs you. Without that bush there, there would have been no burning bush. Mm-hmm. If the theological, if the cardinal theological virtues We're just been took it over, there'd just been, there's a fire! And he'd probably try to, well, he probably would have avoided it. That yeah. these sandals are not flame retardant. <laughs> but I think that, like, well, I think this is one way that maybe the Lego movie messed up with this You don't one. lie. You haven't even seen it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Don't bash just, the movie. Yeah, I'm not bashing the movie. I don't know that you movie. have permission to talk about it. Oh, honestly. are they Catholic writers? <laughs> are they Catholic writers? No, I... they're probably some commie, Platonist, <laughs> Fulios, dude. No, dude, they're corporate 
They're corporate puppets. They're, they're corporate Lego companies. Exactly. Everyone knows and that Lego can, runs the world. And who controls <laughs> who controls the cor- corporate jabronis? You have ten seconds to speak your mind. Okay, look, this is look, this is what I'm gonna say. Okay, the corporate jabronis. Like, this is it. Okay, what you said when he uh, gets taken out of the Lego when he has the veil removed. Mm-hmm. The reality that he's living in is a little kid who's playing with some Legos. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it turns out you're actually just a puppet in some kid's game. Like, that reality, it's, I mean, it's interesting, but it's not really very cool. I wouldn't mm-hmm. like to be a puppet in some game. But the cool part is, if we were to see the actual reality of it, if we were to live like we were creatures and be in tune with reality as it actually is, that is so intensely amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, if we actually understood God's passionate love for us and understood even the incarnation, or like the incarnation coupled with God coming and dying for us, and then the resurrection, mm-hmm. or to think about the battle that's going on right now for our souls, like, that story is way cooler than anything we could oh, ever totally. make for us. Yeah. So that's the whole thing. It's like, if you want to live an adventurous, fun life, just for the sake of fun and happiness, mm-hmm. which... I love. That's yeah, not why. Follow I'm, Jesus, man. Right. He will take you to places you it never thought. It will blow your brains yeah. out. It's way cooler. You're going to have way more fun than you could ever create for yourself. That's why I, I, yeah. I, my sister-in-law invited me to talk to the third grade CCD <clears throat> class she taught because my nephew was in it. And she said, just talk about whatever you want. And I just told the story of salvation history from yeah. the creation of the world, the fall of Satan, to the age of the church, the resurrection, the ascension. Yeah. Just tell them the story. Yeah. That was in college the first time I ever heard the whole story. Yeah. Told, like, from the Catholic worldview. Yeah. Of what actually, what, what's the story of everything, it according to you people? so cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you realize that there's, there's this cosmic battle that's been fought and is being continuously fought. Yeah. Uh, in each soul. Christ is inviting everyone into his army. Yeah. And there's so, and then getting back to the earthiness, of Catholicism, you live in that reality. Like Tolkien said, we live in a myth, but it's true. Yeah. You know? Which is awesome. And, but then to realize, like, there's so much freedom offered in that, that everything becomes that adventure that you were talking about. And another thing. Okay, so this goes to my, my St. Francis Chesterton thing that I've been thinking about. But this whole conversation of the Catholic worldview and like the like the tearing the veil back and, and seeing reality uh, but at the same time remaining on earth you know you got this image of Francis crawling on the earth hanging on for dear life in a certain sense because everything's upside down everything depends on what's the Mumford song say you'll learn dependence you'll learn dependence when you see the maker's hand yeah like Francis sees God in a way you know no one's ever seen God scripture says, but he sees him in his works, you know, yeah. and what's really behind them. But um, he still lives in the world in this really intense way, like we're talking about, like the intensity of Francis is what, you know, got these people to sell everything they had and follow him, you know. He's this icon of Christ and the intensity that Jesus lived his life yeah. on earth. He continues to live through these guys that are just like complete you know, question marks for the world. What is going on with this guy? Yeah. He had everything going for him, okay? He was 
son of this rich dude in this town where everybody that goes to Assisi says it's like the most beautiful place on earth. It is. He's got everything going for him. Why would he, <laughs> why would he dress himself in a burlap sack and, you know, give up a wife uh, become obedient, what you know, to the Pope. He walks, <laughs> he walks in his bare feet to Rome to get his rule, his rule approved by the Pope. Like, the Pope at that time, of course, in the Middle Ages, was just this, you know, on all appearances, like this political exarch, you know, yeah. that just ruled with his iron fist with a huge crown on his head. And this simple little man is going to go, like, kneel before him and ask his, you know, blessing on his new community. And so... But he had this joy that every you know was contagious, um, and the way Chesterton describes Francis is like a, a kid um, in the dark, like where he um, it's like picture yourself in a living room or even this room, and all the lights are out and it's pitch black. You know how would you walk through that room? Probably really slowly. And you'd feel around, like, you'd take small steps, and you'd feel around with your hands to make sure you didn't run into anything and hit your shin on this table or whatever. Because you're worried that, like, there's all this, there's all this stuff in here. I mean, it's not dangerous, but it's, it's enough to make you take your time. You know, how much more if you thought, like, there's a monster in this room or somebody that's gonna stab you? You'd walk super cautiously. You'd always have your guard up. Okay, but Francis walked around that same room as if all the lights were on. Yeah. And the reason was, I mean, it's still dark. Francis is in the same room. The lights are still off. You know, that's the world without the veil torn off. He's still living in the world, but he's holding the hand of the Father. You know, and the Father can see what's in the room. And so he doesn't have to worry one iota about any coffee tables, about banging any shins, about any stranger in the corner in the closet waiting to shoot him. He's just going to run around. Yeah. And he just runs, dude, wild. Yeah. And that's what the Christian does when he really believes. And this is faith that you're holding God's hand, that God is holding your hand. And so, so you don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. Because it's like that thing from Peter Damien. He's going to, like, bend down, cradle your fallen body, whisper words of consolation, and you get right up and just keep running. Yeah. Yeah. That's Chesterton. Dude, he is a G. K. Chesterton. <laughs> He's an OG. K. Oh, Chesterton. yeah. Oh. Have you heard his island analogy? Uh-huh. So he takes... He says, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, it's the start of orthodoxy. Is it? Yeah. Have you heard this? I know I've read the start of orthodoxy, but remind me. So he says that um, this is more him talking, I believe, about the church. Um, how I have heard it presented, anyway. But he envisions Christianity being this huge island coming out of the ocean. And so it's like this... I've not heard this. Okay. It's different, yeah. Okay. Um, this I'm not is how, sure what I think about it yet. <laughs> this is how I've heard it presented. Continue cautiously. Yeah. <laughs> so you picture this huge island that like comes way out of the ocean. So you're like in the middle of the ocean. And it's way up high, like where the like the flat surface is, and it's mm-hmm. beautiful there. But then if you the ledges are like just extremely steep and they you know, it's rocks and there's like for sure death when you fall when you fall off. So Chesterton talks about how 
with the church. It's like that there's a fence around the edge of the island. So when you have that and people realize that there's that fence there, is that they they like they're running around like crazy and they're having a blast and like they're truly free to you know to be like to be who they are and not worry about falling off because the fence is there. Mm-hmm. But then when humanity like insists on tearing down this fence, mm-hmm. what happens? And he says that it's not that people go tumbling over the side a ton. It's that people are so afraid of falling off mm. that as opposed to like this joyful, like playful community, people are just terrified, huddled together in the middle of the island. Oh, dude. And isn't that so true? That's a scary, it's a scary picture of it. Yeah. It's true. But he said, as soon as you take down that fence, it's not that people just go hurling themselves off. It's that they become so afraid of the edge that they just huddle together in the middle. And like all the joy is gone. You know, that, I was actually going to speak to that a little bit. Um, Not to the story, but the message of it. Oh, just like, well, let me enlighten you here, Seabisk, in Juice Factor. Is this on some of your writings? Well, uh, I can't remember what book it was. Some of your commentary on GK? Dude, yeah. Uh, yeah. What does GK stand for, by the way? Gilbert Keith. Yeah. Could be worse. It could be worse. <laughs> but I, I still understand why I mean, it's, abbreviated. It's, it couldn't be better. Gilbert Keith is as good as it gets. Gilbert? Gilbert Keith. If you, Dude, if you just saw some of the pictures of him when he was younger, he would be like, <laughs> That's Gilbert Keith Chesterton. There's no doubt. Like that greasy club. forehead, that's Ooh. definitely a Gilbert. He's in the debate club and they're all like... Staring. I might just call him Bert for short. Bert? Yeah. Gil- yeah, yeah. If you do, I'll have to smack you, but... You guys know Bert Chesterton? Bert, oh, good old Bert. Um, what did he say? Dad, now that see this kid... Enlighten us, bro. I can't remember what I was going to say. About the eye, you were saying that... Oh, oh, this is what I'm going to say. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, just like we talked about the beauty and the wonder and the excellence that a Christian who's living a truly Christian life led by the Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, God's grace, can bring, it's just Francis running around. That's, I mean, that's such a cool image. You know, I don't have to worry about anything. These people that are running around freely on this island, I don't have to worry about anything. I have these fences here to protect me. But it's equally as harmful when Christianity says that it can do that, when Catholicism says that it can do that, and yet we have priests or Catholics or Christians in general who don't live it, mm-hmm. who live the opposite of that. You say, oh, really, Catholicism is the super joyful, happy religion? Then why is my pastor always grumpy and never wants to talk to me? Why are all my Catholic friends huge idiots and they're mm-hmm. huge jerks? It's like, that's super damaging. So when we don't go out and live out this vocation of Christianity, live out our vocation of loving Christ, of being saints first, of being joyful saints, it is equally, if not more, damaging to live that way than, I mean, I think probably anything else. To I agree falsely, that it's damaging. That's a hypocrite. Yeah. That's what Christ, that's the, that's the New Testament right there. That's an actor. That's a player. Mm-hmm. You're, you're saying that you're one thing. That's duplicity. You're saying that you're one thing. And living completely, completely opposite, and that does a lot of damage. Well, dude, this is in the extreme. This is like the Westboro Baptist Church, the people that protest soldiers' funerals and right. signs that say "God's happy when soldiers die," like really vile things yeah. about homosexuals and stuff like that. Yeah, 
Um, that that's like the most damage you could do with oh, yeah. a, with yeah, a Christian. Yeah. Like I don't know how you well, write a sign that says God hates yeah. fags or something. You know, just like this really disgusting, hateful thing, yeah. and read the scriptures like most of the stuff yeah. in the Bible, and and in any way interpret that that's a behavior that God condones. Yeah. But at the same time, however damaging that is, you can also see how um, Catholicism, Christianity, it it resonates with people. You know, it's like when it's sung right, it's like a tune that can't get out of people's heads. You know, so a Francis does so much more good than a thousand people, you know, protesting a soldier's yeah. funeral. That those people, they might as well not exist. Because people will see the Francis and say, that's Jesus. Yeah. That's who he really is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somebody who loves intensely. Yeah. And doesn't deal with people according to, what's the Sunday gospel this, this Sunday I have to preach on? is um, God lets the sun rise on the just and the unjust. Yeah, yeah. God's prodigality. You know, he doesn't like the square deal. Like Scott was saying on yeah. Wednesday. He doesn't like the whole, you were so good, you know, with X and Y, but Z was a little bit of a, you know, debit to your account, so I'll give you this much grace. Yeah. You know, he's going to pour his love out as intensely as you will receive it. Yeah. And that's what Francis did. He didn't deal with people according to their sins, according to their appearance or anything else, any merit of their own. He just dealt with them as the infinite valuable human being that yeah. was in front of him. And all the great saints are like that. They say, you know, people that knew Mother Teresa, when you talked to her, you felt like the only person on earth because of the way she looked at you and talked to you. Um, and so somebody who meets Mother Teresa, doesn't matter how many West Brook Baptist Church people they meet. Yeah, They know who right. the real Christ right. is. That's true. Right. Um, right. So, in a way, it's like, yeah, Christians behaving badly. Oh, what so much damage it does. But I also am filled with a lot of hope that if I'm disposed to receive the grace to be a good priest, and this was interesting, when I went to the Holy Land last year, <clears throat> I was praying in the holy places, like Calvary, you know, you can you can kneel, you can touch the rock where Jesus died. You can touch the, the, the place where Jesus rose from the dead. And in those places where I, was, I felt so much more in contact with Jesus' humanity, his actual historical life on earth, and in that way was more spiritually in, in touch with him, you know, like in these moments of intense prayer. My prayer became very simple. It's like, God, let me be a good priest. Let me love the people. It wasn't like, you know, complicated, long, wordy prayers. That's the stuff that came out of my heart, you know. And that, he doesn't ask a lot in that way. Yeah. Like when it, the rubber meets the road. And people will, and it's already in my experience, I'm not even a priest yet, even as a deacon, even as just a seminarian in hospitals and nursing homes, when people see Christ in you, whatever shadowy image he can get out of you, of his actual love for the person that you're standing in front of, they will be like, it's irresistible. Yeah, yeah. That's why we got to live out our vocations, man. I think it's important for us to remember that uh, certainly God's will is going to be done. Um, we just have to 
be disposed to allow God to use us. Sure. You know? Because, whatever it is. Right, whatever whatever that may lead to. But um, the the message of Christ <clears throat> isn't going to resonate through the saints if there are no saints to portray it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the real task. Yeah, know? God forbid that somebody go through their life and the only kind of Christian they ever met was a gloomy right. one. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like the great prayer of St. Teresa of Avila. She says, Lord, you know, please spare us from uh, silly yeah. devotions and sour-faced the saints. Sour-faced saints, that's right. Yeah. That's, a, that's such a great prayer. That is a great prayer. That is a great prayer. Well, y'all want to wrap this up? I think so. I'm okay. tired. Yeah. Shyster. Oh, 11.30. Oh, man, we went pretty long. Bacon and walnuts and gorges. Oh, God, ooh, you are so big. You did know it, dude. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisc, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And down.